Hello, Duncan Green here uh, with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Might be a bit longer than usual because there are some really good ones this week, um, but I'll try and keep it to 15 minutes or so. Um, links I liked on Monday, a couple of things which I think got people's interest. One was um, the half-life of different social media. So how long does it take for half the total readership to arrive and look at something on social media and a huge span from two years for the average blog post to 18 minutes for Twitter. So Twitter is a real fire and forget kind of instant amnesia thing. Blogs, I'm glad to see, um, have a bit more of a, a shelf life. There was also some lovely, uh, a lovely video from CBS in the US, CBS uh, News Channel, how to communicate with the public about inequality. They had a guy in a shopping mall um, trying to ask people what they thought about inequality and no one wanted to talk. So then he got out a bunch of pies um, and started asking people how much pie they thought different bits of the population should get and which bit of the pie would they want and so on. And once it was tangible in the form of a pie, people got really engaged and really outraged when they saw just how much of the pie went to small, went to a tiny group proportion of the population. So visible, tangible Pie-based campaigning is definitely the way to go. The next post was by Alison Corkery and Ignacio Saiz of the Centre for Economic and Social Rights. And this was a reflection. They, uh, Alison was a fellow at the International Institute for Inequalities Atlantic Fellows Scheme at the LSE. And as part of her work there, she had to write a blog. And, and this was a reflection on a new report by the Fight Inequality Alliance on uh, a survey of activism around the world on inequality. And Alison and Ignacio were reflecting on what does this mean for the human rights movement? Because the human rights movement is actually a bit disconnected from the inequality movement. And this is one of the three findings from the report is that activists are not using human rights frameworks. And Alison and Ignacio think that introducing, getting more activists to understand how human rights connects to inequality would help raise issues of social justice in that discussion. Um, they they felt challenged by the disconnect between bottom-up activism and top-down activism because traditionally the human rights movement has felt much more comfortable working at a top-down level with bringing legal cases, working with governments and UN system. And they thought that you know, it, it, stress, it shows the need to link the bottom-up to the, the, the grassroots movements with the, with the more sort of insider advocacy movements because otherwise the grassroots movements fail to get the impact they should and the, the elite, sort of more elite-based advocacy loses out on a pile of energy and legitimacy in campaigns. And then finally, um, they were delighted to see that activists surveyed by the uh, Fight Inequality Alliance said they wanted more on more support and collaboration on research and analysis. So, you know, music to their ears. Yes, lots more knowledge work needed to make all this stuff work. On Wednesday, I, 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 I chaired a, a panel recently at the LSE. The LSE does loads of um, um, uh, evening events for students on how to get a job because, uh, you know, what they, the, as soon as they get out of the LSE, they're all scrambling around trying to get a job, pay off their loans and all the rest of the, the horrors of entering the workforce. Um, and so the careers team at uh, LSE organised a panel of people working for big international donors. So bilaterals like DFID or USAID, um, regional development banks like uh, the EBRD or the Asia Development Bank, 
um, and the World Bank. And so it was a very much, they just had people from these big international donors, some of them at the start of their careers, some of them retired, all the way in between, and they, and, and they were asked to give their top tips. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll, I'll just collect their top tips. And these were one about the, 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 the quality of, of working in aid, saying, you know, you need courage, you need to try things which are scary, but you also need humility, you know, be aware of your limits and your ignorance, and don't abandon your moral compass. You're here for a purpose which is not purely about earning a wage, so that courage, humility, moral compassing was quite striking. Stay mobile. All of these people have moved around, around a lot within their institutions and between institutions. And many of them have been able to move from sort of less exciting departments from their point of view to more exciting departments. So there weren't big walls within the institutions which were stopping them. So almost get in on any, any get in to a big institution doing anything. And if you're energetic and smart, you'll be able to move. Um, travel wisely. Don't just go and do voluntourism, sit in an orphanage. Um, that people are onto that, and it doesn't do you any favours, as well as being a bad thing to do. Um, try and go with a mission, with a purpose. Try not to substitute for local capacity. That doesn't achieve anything. That undermines development. Doesn't strengthen it. But travel is good, and and especially for one of the uh, speakers, for young women, if you've been to a country, it's a great way to to, to be more confident and assertive when you're talking to your seniors about what needs to happen in that place or what is actually happening already in that place. Another nice personal one was appreciate yourself. Be an advocate for what you've done. Don't discount it. So don't oversell, obviously, but appreciate what you've done, that you've, you've come to this place because you've got certain skills and you've invested in certain uh, experiences, don't discount that. Soft skills. They talked a lot about soft skills. Be a persuader, learn how to read a room, dance with the system, spot opportunities for, to, to achieve things within a bureaucracy. Sadly, I think one of the things that universities, including my own LSE, is not very good at teaching. We teach a lot of knowledge and facts and analysis but all that soft skill stuff, which is so crucial to being effective in the workplace, you're supposed to kind of pick up on the edges and on the margins um, and just through experience. I'm sure we could do a better job than that. And then everybody went on about networking. You've got to network, network, network. And, I, you know, I, I hate networking and I started to feel quite queasy about this because, you know, this like what if you're an, what if you're an introvert? What if you don't like going to parties? What if you don't like going up to people at the end of a talk and asking for their card and pushing yourself as a you know great person they should they should hire? Um, and I raise the question: you know, what are introverts supposed to do in this situation? Do you just fake it till you make it and just sort of you know do yourself huge psychic damage by just pretending to be an introvert, an extrovert rather, or can you do something else? And there were some good there'd be a couple of good suggestions on comments about basically budding up with an extrovert and working together with them and using them to do all the, this stuff um, and some things like that. So the comments on this top tips that's thing have really kicked off. Final thing um, uh, the panellists were asked was, what are the practical skills that are going to become more important that, that today's students should really pick up? And you won't be surprised to hear lots on monitoring, evaluation, learning, quantitative skills, whatever my scruples and doubts. These are really important. Data viz, you know, crucial way of communicating but also learn to draft and synthesize. You know, try turning your uh, essays and your assignments into a two-page executive summary. Develop those skills. So when it went up, there was a lot of traffic on Twitter and in comments. 
Um, some of the chapter was was basically saying this is too positive about aid. You know, where's the critique of aid? Where's all the stuff on safeguarding? Where's the stuff on localization and decolonizing aid? All good. And there's piles of stuff on the blog about that. That not what this event was actually about. This was event was for a group of students, north and south, probably about 50, 50 in the room, wanting to know how to get a job in aid. Um, then there's another another sort of stra strand of comments, which was like, you know, we need to stop aid. Aid is kind of passe, someone said. Well, yes and no. I mean, it'll, it, international collaboration will, in, will continue. Internationalism will continue. And people will continue to get jobs working either in their own governments or in other governments or in NGOs around that area. So I think that's a little bit crude as well. Um, one critique which did hit home, I think, was that what I'd written was very northern. And that even though the audience was 50-50, the speakers were largely northern and the audience was largely pretty well off because they're paying LSE fees. And a, uh, a mate of mine, Macarand, did a kind of how this looks from India response on his blog um, about how different it is to try and get into the development business if you're, if you're sitting in India rather than sitting in London. Um, and his basic point was the barriers to entry are much, much higher. Once you're in, as he is, you can do things, but getting in is much harder. So I, I urge you to read the comments as well as the blog. Fourth, we had um, a student at LSE, Teniela Tayo, who got in touch and wanted to write a piece about her experience of being an African studying at the LSE. And the, 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 the title she gave it was Africa is the world's problem child and how I feel about it as an African. She's doing a master's in international development. She'd never been to the global north before she came to the LSE. And so she found it quite a, a, a jarring experience. She'd never thought of her continent as just a problem. Um, she's very cosmopolitan. She follows all the debates on Brexit and Trump and all the rest of it. Uh, in the Gilets Jaunes in France and so on. Very engaged. And then she came to the LSE and she found that her continent was basically pathologized. Um, you know, that, that Africa is a problem. Um, and, you know, they, uh, we're discussing with students how to solve Africa. Um, and, uh, yeah, her questions really is, is it always a problem? No, there's lots of good things happening, but we don't talk about those. And does this leak over into Africans being a problem? Does this somehow leak over into something almost racist, certainly colonial, that Africans are incapable of, right, of running a continent and, and, and they are a problem? So she says she's ended up becoming what she calls defensively African, which is, I think, a, a lovely sort of turn of phrase. Um, uh, and I urge you to read the, 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 the whole post, which is great. Um, she, and she ends up in the, surprisingly saying, look, for me, the real blame is not to the professors. So that's a relief from my point of view or the West, but African leaders and what they've done in the past, you know, selling their people into slavery and so on. But also African leaders have to be part of the solution. And so she ends up with a sort of call to action. We've got to roll up our sleeves and replicate what we have done well, which I think was great. And I'm sure Tenny's going to be part of that sleeve rolling exercise. And it was a lovely blog. And then final, uh, finally, to end the week, I had a, a, a podcast which seemed to follow naturally from Taniola's piece um, with Akasua Adamako Ampofo, who came to speak at the LSE of, uh, recently um, on how to decolonize academia. And Akasua is president of the African Studies Association of Africa. The, the clue is in the name. She's a prof at the University of Ghana. Uh, and they've set up a, an African Studies Association of Africa 
in protest, really, or, or as a response to the way Africa is constantly seen from outside rather than from the inside. So the podcast was great. We chatted for about 40 minutes, talked about her family, talked about the decolonization moment. She's really funny as well. She talks about how her daughters, when, when she says, I've got to go to you know, give this talk on decolonization, they roll their eyes and call her Auntie Decolonize, which I thought was great. Um, we talked about the decolonization of the research system, of which she is you know, a very important part. And she thinks there is a huge way to go in this, that, that you know, research, the, the structure of research is dominated by northern funders, northern academics, northern institutions, with southern, as I, you know, we've had a series of pieces on the blog about this, southern academics and researchers come in in a very subordinate position. And um, an example of this is capacity building. So when people do capacity building, they tend to mean northern capacity uh, being transferred to southern academics. So, you know, technical skills, I don't know, RCTs or whatever. But southern researchers have a vast capacity in areas like speaking the language, understanding how things work, a bunch of stuff which is not given nearly the same uh, status and f or funded in the same way as these other, the, the more the hard skills, so-called. Um, and so we talked about the need for localization of research funding to get over this. I mean, it's very parallel, a lot of similar arguments to, to, to the discussions of, about reforming the aid system, the, about the role of the African Studies Association of Africa. And then we finally we ended on a couple of personal notes. So from her, from her, I was just interested in the fact that she's quite a, a devout Christian. And I wanted to talk to her about how she sees Christianity and how, how it um, fits with her feminism and her, her activism. And then I just had to ask her at the end, you know, what is the role in this decolonization debate? What is the role for old white men like me? Should we just get out of the way? And to my relief, she said, well, not exactly. She said, people like you should step to the side and step to the back, but not step out altogether. And you should be constantly pushing other people forward and saying, yeah, don't talk to me, talk to them. Which sounds like a, a very useful bit of advice for you. Know, I'm trying to do that. I need to try harder. Good way to end the week. Have a great weekend.